0: I'm going to
1: actually pause that recording for a second. Time, your brain is multitasking, right? Uh,
0: it, it, of course. I just started the recording so that we would be sure not to miss anything. Um, I'm going to give a little brief introduction to the environment, which I think will help you as well. But the main thing I think I can tell you to, to make sure that you feel comfortable is that above the whiteboard, where there's the uh, um, notice of the today's link, you'll see some arrows, and you'll be able to scroll through your presentation, which I've embedded in here. Okay. So the moment we get to, to that, you'll, you'll be able to take over. So let me, if it's okay with you, I'll do a little bit of introduction. Sure. And then, um, and then bring you on, because we want to capture your words of wisdom. Hi, everybody. This is Steve Hargadon. It's Thursday, August 20th, 2009. This is a combination of conversations.net and futureofeducation.com. With me is Dr. Gary Small, the author of iBrain, Surviving the Technological Alteration of the Modern Mind. We're going to do a brief introduction of this environment, if you haven't been in Illuminate before. Uh, Oh, and before we do so, let me just uh, remind you of some upcoming shows. Uh, August 25th, next week on Tuesday, Tim Westerbren, the founder of Pandora, talking about music and licensing and the impact on uh, society and culture. September 3rd, Manny Hernandez to talk about NING and niche, niche special, specialization, both in education and beyond. September 8th, this is new Cheryl Nuscom Beach to talk about educational social networking. September 9th, Jane Nelson of a Positive Discipline fame talking about parenting in a Web 2.0 world. September 15th, Anne Galeran about e-twinning, the program in Europe for combining classrooms. September 22nd, John C.D. Brown. October 6th, Dennis Litke on Big Picture Schools. Still to schedule, but committed are Clay Shirky, Doc Searles, Dana Boyd, Tim Magner, David Thornberg, and Esther, whose last name I really need to learn to pronounce. If this is your first time in Illuminate. I want to make sure that you know how to use the tools here. If you think you might like to ask Dr. Small a question in the Q&A portion of the the interview, go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard. And that will make sure that your mic is working. Uh, You'll see a variety of um, ways to interact in this session. Uh, Below the participant box, you'll see a hand with a green up arrow. That's how you raise your hand, let us know that you want to talk. Uh, if you wouldn't, wouldn't mind waiting until the Q&A, that would be great. You'll also see a smiley face and a clapping hander. I'm clapping for Dr. Small coming in so quickly and um, getting everything ready. Uh, you can also express confusion or uh, something you disagree with The thumbs down. We don't see that often, but you can do that. Uh, it's, uh, there is a, an ability to send messages here in the chat. These are a lot of fun. You can send private messages to each other, to other members uh, who are attending, but do know that Dr. Small, uh, Teresa, and I will see them all. Uh, they do come through to the moderators. It's often easier to operate in this environment if you go up to view layouts and select the wide layout. It lets you see more over the chat. So now we're going to give you a chance to participate. I'm going to give you the ability to actually modify this map on the right-hand side. If you click on the wand with the red star at the end, just to the left of the map, you can actually then click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. It's fun to shout that out in the chat as well. Some of you have done that already. Also fun to know uh, the time and temperature if you're not in the United States. If you are somewhere unique, Do uh, let us know. Okay, and then for those of you, I'm going to shift in a moment here. For those of you who are in the United States, you get the chance to do the same thing on this US map. Go ahead and click on where you
1: are. A nicely
0: geographically dispersed group in the US tonight. That's a lot of fun. Okay, so it is a pleasure to introduce Dr. Small. Uh, I have with me also tonight uh, Teresa Becca, who is my co-host slash intern for the Conversations.net interview series. Uh, Thanks for being here, Teresa. And Dr. Small, thank you for being here. Could you start by giving us a little bit of an introduction uh, to your background and how the book came about, and then we'll let you launch right into your PowerPoint.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. And I'm hoping everyone can hear me. Uh, if you can't, I guess, put one of those little thumbs down or send me a message because I think when you were talking, Steve, a moment ago, there were moments when I when your voice blocked out. Is that an error on my end?
0: Well, no, that could be an error on my end because I'm using uh, a less than high-quality microphone since I'm on vacation and didn't bring my best mic. So I apologize if you only heard portions of me, but thanks so for that bringing that up.
1: Okay, so let me, uh, this is great, we have 77 hands raised, 77 participants, fantastic. Uh, I just, this is it's such a pleasure to be invited to this conversation and uh, to, to begin to answer Steve's question. I've been uh, working in psychiatry and neuroscience for over two decades. And during that time period, I've studied the aging brain. I've tried to understand what happens to our brains as they age. And during that process, I've developed a lot of technologies. I've, I've worked on brain scanning technologies that have allowed us for the first time to see the, the evidence of Alzheimer's disease, amyloid plaques and tangles in living people. And so I've, I'm sort of a tech geek because of that. And uh, At the same time, I've noticed how other forms of technology have insinuated themselves into our lives. Uh, Computers, handheld devices, uh, the Internet, all these wonderful contraptions that uh, really make our lives better. Uh, I wondered how they're affecting our brain function. And that's really what the idea was behind iBrain, to, to try to understand how these technologies are not only altering our lives, but altering our brains, and what we can do about it. And, and I'm going to talk a bit about that in some PowerPoint slides I'm going to show you. And then, hopefully, we'll have uh, a little bit of a conversation about it. So uh, let me just say that more details on these points can be found in my book, iBrain, which I wrote with my wife, Gigi Borgen, and, uh you can certainly look at the book. You can check out my website to find out more about it, drgarysmall.com. But to give you the big picture, what we're talking about is how our brains are affected from moment to moment from a variety of stimuli. So if, if you look at this computer screen that you see, um, or if you, let's say, look at a book, hopefully this book. Uh, or if you look at somebody's face, there will be in your brain uh, an elaborate triggering of neurocircuitry. And in fact, uh, what happens is light comes into your eye, it bombards the back of your eye, the retina, neurotransmitters and chemical reactions are tweaked, and the information is transported along synapses, which are connection sites between various neurons in the brain and we can study these different processes. These are PET scans and actually early PET scan images showing what happens if you hear a particular word versus seeing that word versus speaking the word or generating the same word in your mind without speaking it. And you could see very different neural circuits are tweaked as a result of those experiences. Now we know that uh, if we spend our time activating certain neural circuits over and over again those neural circuits that control that experience will be strengthened if we avoid certain neural circuits uh, or certain experiences the neural circuits controlling those experiences or mental tasks will weaken in a sense and i think What is happening today is that we're spending a tremendous amount of time stimulating our brains with the new technology, and it's going to have an effect on how our brains evolve. And we know that as we advanced as a species, our brains essentially got bigger. There's no dispute about that among scientists. And we also know that there have been some major milestones in brain evolution. For example, you see here a in, in Neanderthal holding a handheld tool, and that was probably a major breakthrough in brain evolution where we had an increase in the size of the frontal lobe. We had, at the same time, grammatical language and social networking uh, developed. And if you think about it, to develop a handheld tool, it really involves complex reasoning and planning skills. And that's really where we had co-evolution of these other activities. And the question you might ask is, what will happen with this new handheld tool, the the mouse, which in the future will probably become obsolete? We probably won't use a mouse. We'll have uh, brain computer interface technology, and we'll just think about things to operate our external hard drives. But what does this have to do with evolution? If we think about natural selection in Charles Darwin, and he taught us that genetic variants that adapt the best to a particular environment are most likely to survive, and that explains in part the tremendous diversity of our species. So think about it. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, this was the environment that our brains adapted to. What will happen with this new environment? How will our brains adapt? I think that is the big question. We don't know what will happen, and it may turn evolution upside down, as we see in this cartoon. In iBrain, we talk about two groups affected. And and the first group would be the digital natives. And these are primarily young people who are born into the technology. They're very comfortable with it. They uh, grow up with it. Uh, Their brains are really hardwired to operate it very quickly and very effectively. But the downside of being a digital native is that you don't spend as much time with direct face-to-face human contact. The the social interactions are not as hardwired as they are in the older generation. And a concern is that empathy skills and complex reasoning skills may not be fully developed as a result of the high-tech experience at a young age. Now, there is some science to back this up. A very interesting study that was done in 2007 looked at nearly 200 young people, ages 17 to 23, and they had them play video games and then watch a face change its expression and here you seem to see examples of these faces and essentially it was a neutral face either morphing to this angry face or morphing to a happy face and what they found in this particular study was that when these young people played a video game before the task that they lost the happy face advantage in other words it took them longer to recognize the emotional emotional expression of the face, which suggests that yes, spending time with this technology does have a negative impact on those face-to-face human contact skills. Now, the digital immigrants who have more time to train their brains with the social human contact skills, they're a little more reluctant to come to the technology. They adapt to it less readily. And they're learning the technology or to use it at a time when their brains are older, when uh, the reaction time is slower, memory ability is not as good. Older digital immigrants often will have trouble with Blackberries and some of the small keyboards because of arthritis and other issues. And so we have uh, what we've called a brain gap, kind of an extension of the generation gap, but we contend that the brains of natives and immigrants are are wired differently. And so in the course of writing iBrain, I wanted to learn more about this. And so at UCLA, I got some investigators together. We decided to do this study we called Your Brain on Google. And what we wanted to see is what the brain looked like the first time it would search online. So we took a very basic Technology task that everybody does, or, or most people do. Not everybody. In fact, we uh, wanted to recruit people who were older, who had never searched online, and that was probably the hardest part of the study. Congratulations, you're the last person on earth to get an email account. Uh, we you couldn't recruit these people online, so uh, you know we had to use word of mouth and have newspaper ads, but we finally did find a group of what we called 12 internet naive people who were on average 65 and uh, we matched them up with 12 people who were internet savvy, about the same age. These were relatively educated people, they had several years of college, they were mostly women, and for all we could tell they differed according to how comfortable they were with computers and with internet searching. Now, to do this study, we use functional MRI, and anybody who's Uh, been in an MRI scanner knows it's a pretty narrow tube. You can't get a computer in there. And so what we did was use these specialized goggles that you see in this image. And so people wore these goggles and we presented them with different images. We presented them with, say, a a bar and we said, now pay attention to this bar. And we could measure their brain activity while they paid attention and factor that out. We could control for reading a book page. And here you see uh, an example of one of these book pages. And then we could compare to re- reading a book to, say, searching online. We had these simulated uh, internet pages, and then we had the information on the internet pages, and we had a, a little keyboard where they could op- operate uh, a mouse, a simulated mouse. And so we were able to compare several things, and you see the basic results in this study. You can get the actual publication in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. This is what we found. We found that in the internet naive people when they read the book page you can see certain areas of the brain represented by the blue in the upper left image. So the back of the brain where the visual cortex is, the front of the brain with the thinking brain and also uh, different areas of memory. They were activated when the internet naive people read the text page. When the internet naive people searched online, there wasn't much difference in the pattern. If you look at the upper image, upper red image, when the net savvy people read the text page, it was very similar. But the big difference was seen in the lower right image of the internet savvy people searching online. There was a more than twofold increase activity with that search task. So. That's quite an interesting finding and it's the first time anybody's looked at that, actually measured brain activity while searching online. There have been a few studies where scientists have looked at g- video gamers and what happens to their brains and you see different kinds of results. Sometimes the frontal lobe is increased, sometimes the amygdala, uh, which probably has something to do with addiction to the video gaming and the results are are somewhat complicated and it's probably because the brain is complicated and the technology is complicated and I think what the one way to understand these kinds of findings is illustrated in this next slide if you look at brain activation on the vertical axis versus time on the horizontal one anytime our brains are confronted with a new unfamiliar task we don't know what to do with it We uh, kind of search around. We try to figure out how to deal with it. You can think about the first time you did a Sudoku puzzle, or the first time you searched online or used the internet, or maybe the first time. Uh, right now I was exposed to this kind of uh, program. I was a little bit lost. I wasn't quite sure what to do. If you had measured my brain activity during that mental task, you probably wouldn't have seen much. It would have been sort of scattered. But once we develop a mental strategy, then you see kind of an upswing in activity. And I think that's what we saw in this uh, Brain on Google study. However. Once people get good at a task, we generally see greater brain efficiency, so we see a decrease in the activity as a result of it, and that you see in the uh, the other end of that U-shaped curve. So let me just, I want to conclude, I want this to be a conversation. I didn't want to take up the whole time, but you know, I want people to know that I'm not negative about technology. I love technology. There are some challenges. I mentioned The decrease in face-to-face communication skills. There's also the problem with attention deficit. There's a problem with addiction. Uh, But there are some positive aspects of it. We know that surgeons who play video games make fewer errors in the operating room. Also teenagers who use the technology a lot uh, have improved visual intention and reaction time. And so we need to balance what we're doing online and we need to balance it with offline time because we know that Uh, We can train the brain through psychotherapy, or we've done studies with healthy lifestyle where we can increase brain efficiency in the frontal lobe. And in finding that balance, we need to upgrade the tech skills of the older generation, and we need to help younger people with their social contact skills, the digital natives. And I think that's really going to be the key in, in bridging the brain gap. And I want to also, in addition to... Again, mentioning my website, drgarysmall.com, I see when I looked at the map, there are not a lot of people in Los Angeles, but those of you in Los Angeles may be interested in finding out about our UCLA Technology and Aging Conference, October 30th, and if you go to aging.ucla.edu, you can find a link to that conference, and we'll talk more about these kinds of issues as well as a lot of Uh, ways in which technology is improving our lives as we age. So at that, uh, I want to open up the lines for conversation. And uh, I was concentrating just now on giving my talk, so I wasn't looking at all the uh, different comments going on here, but I'll turn it over to Steve to help me uh, at this point. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: So that was a a terrific overview and really appreciate uh, how well you did that and and then how quickly also to leave time for questions. Uh, If you've got a question, please feel free to start putting it in the chat or to raise your hand and ask the question by microphone. If you are going to ask by mic, do go up to Tools Audio and run the audio Setup Wizard to make sure your mic is working so you can do that quickly. So I'd like to start uh, by asking about the uh, whether or not this we're looking at these changes as positive or negative and how do they fit into the context of the ways in which our brains have changed because of writing or radio or movies and television and and are these just changes or can we actually ascribe a value to them as being positive or negative?
1: Well I think they're clearly changes but uh, let's just uh, think about this there is a recent study That uh, looked at the amount of time the average young person spends with all their technology. If you look at uh, video gaming, television, um, you know their PDAs, cell phones, texting, IMing, and so forth. And, And let me add that usually a young person will be multitasking. They they will be. Uh, doing their homework and video conferencing and listening to their iPod at the same time. The average time is nine hours a day, so that's a lot of time, it's a much bigger impact than we've really had in the past. So I think that that's part of the issue, that there is so much time involved. And I think it really is uh, affecting brain wiring. But uh, one good thing is that our brains are very, um, very resilient, and also, very plastic and malleable. So if we think we're we're doing too much in one area, we can change that. We can make efforts to spend time offline. I know for myself, if I, you know, one of my weaknesses is email. I do a lot of business on email and even uh, social interaction on email. I can go for hours on email and it just, I get brain fog from it. I just do it too much. So I make sure I take breaks and I spend time offline. So I think it is something that we can address, we can do something about, but I'm convinced it definitely affects our brain wiring and brain function.
0: So it sounds like part of what you're saying is that in recognizing the changes, there's a responsibility for those who are older and and have a sort of a broader worldview or a a grander sense of how things fit together to work to try and uh, buffer and ameliorate some of those things that are taking place. Kristen, you are waiting patiently. Do you know how to? If you click on the mic button, you have mic privileges now, and you can ask a question. Hi, I
2: just want to say I really enjoyed your talk so far. Um, my question: I'm a teacher, and I noticed when we were looking at the brain scans uh, that the Internet piece, there was a much higher activity on the brain. Is that indicating that reading things online in that multimedia format has increased retention as well, or is it only increased activity?
1: Great question, Kristen. I think all we can say is about is activity. We don't know about retention. This study didn't look at that, and in fact, uh, you know, the, the simplified view of it is uh, Google's making us smarter because it's activating our brain. Now, that may be true, but I don't know for sure. Now, there, some of you, uh, if you followed, I just did a, a blog on uh, psychology today, yesterday, and I talked about a recent study that found that uh, young people who are spending more time texting are becoming uh, better or, or quicker. They're becoming quicker at uh, solving mental tests, but they're also getting sloppier. So uh, this is a problem. I think this is probably true with too much time on certain types of formats that we are really quickening the pace of our mental activity, but not attending to detail. I don't know if others have found that.
2: Thank you. That's very helpful and uh, very true, I think.
0: (laughs) Thanks. So Martus asked a question in the chat, Dr. Small. How might these findings inform strategies for delivering educational experiences to digital natives?
1: Well, I think it informs us a lot, and i've been speaking at a lot of schools, and I have a lot of uh, talks coming up in the fall at different schools around the country because educators are quite concerned about this they're quite interested about it. They have a whole generation of digital natives who are frankly bored by the talking head of the traditional classroom teacher. And I think what educators need to do is they need to become innovative. They need to bring in the technology because we have a whole new generation that is used to this rapid multitasking pace. And this is, this is really uh, what gets them going, what gets their interests going. So I think we really need to be mindful of that and to not uh, dismiss it. Because the technology train is way out of the station and we're not going to stop it. We really have to jump onto it and really try to be innovative about it.
0: Do you want to talk at all about what you call in the book the elastic midlife brain and the value that sometimes is overlooked of older people's ability to help younger people in this circumstance?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I I have an aging brain. We all have an aging brain at a a certain pace. And even uh, young people are going through an aging process. They're going through pruning, which means that 60% of the of the synaptic connections in their brains are pruned away by the time they finish adolescence. So it's a, it really makes a difference how you uh, decide to sh- spend your time and what you expose your brain to. But I think uh, the middle-aged brain has really gotten a lot of negative publicity. The upside of the middle-aged brain is that the white matter the part of the brain, sort of the wiring that is insulated, which is the white matter, it's actually reaching its peak in middle age. So we middle agers are really uh, very good at putting together the big picture of trying to reason in a complex way, see the forest through the trees. We may not be quite as good at rote memory and, and recalling a lot of the details of information, but we can cut to the chase. Quite quickly, better than an adolescent. So, Maria, oh, I've given
0: you the mic. If you'd like to ask a question,
1: I don't think I'm hearing Maria.
0: Maria, your audio's not coming through.
2: Okay, uh, oh, no I should oh,
0: Here.
2: Um, my question comes from my daughter. Uh, she's listening to this presentation, and sh- she mentioned how. Uh, writing is much easier than speaking out loud, and I can say the same for myself because of the accent and English has third language issues. Can do you have any comments on that, on different media and communication in different media, what it does to our brain if we
1: always type? Well, this, uh, thank you, Maria, that's a terrific question, and I think the choice of technology or communication device or program is dictated by the ease of use. Uh, and a lot of people, there have been some studies showing that people who have social phobias, who are shyer, uh, will use the technology to avoid face-to-face discussions because it is more nerve-wracking and anxiety-provoking and you have more control. And if you have a heavy accent, it's easier for people to understand. What I talk about in iBrain is being more mindful about what kind of technology we use for the communication. I've seen these email conversations go on and on among uh, you know 50 people where it gets very confusing. You don't know what people are talking about, and the best response is, Let's talk. Let's meet and solve the problem. Some issues are much better dealt with face-to-face or even on the telephone in a conference call than in email or texting or IMing. So I think we we want, or sometimes we just get lazy, and I've done it myself, or there's somebody in an office uh, just down the hall from me. Rather than get up and talk, I'll send another email or I'll send a text to them. So I think we really want to choose the best method of communication uh, that's appropriate to the issue at hand. So, if you have a
0: question for Dr. Small, please feel free to raise your hand or type it in the chat. Right, are you willing to open the door to talking a little bit about um, multitasking or continuous partial attention or task distraction?
1: Well, sure. I mean, there's been—I mean, we already kidded a little bit about the debate: is there really such a thing as multitasking? Some will contend that you know your your brain has to shift from task to task, it can't do two things at the same time, which I don't think is true because I I gave the example of breathing and thinking at the same time. We can certainly juggle and whistle at the same time. So we can multitask and most of us do it and we like to do it, it kind of gives us a, a little bit of a, a charge in doing it and we have the perception that we are more efficient when we multitask. Now, the middle-aged brain, in fact, is not more efficient. And studies have found that if you give a middle-ager a distraction during a task, they make more errors. And I found it myself, uh, if I've had a big deadline with a grant or a paper, I'll just turn off all the devices, I'll focus on that paper or that grant, and I'll get a hell of a lot done in a short period of time. So, a young brain, I think, is probably better at multitasking. It's trained at it more and uh, it's more malleable to learn how to do it. Today, it's hard to get around that if you use all kinds of media, You, you know, even just watching television. You'll be watching a television show, and there'll be a little pop-up ad, uh, or you watch the news. There's a ticker tape on the bottom plus ads, so there's three things going on at once. So this is part of our current lifestyle. In terms of partial continuous attention, that's a little bit of a different uh, experience. That's what we all seem to do with the technology, I'm sitting here right now and the phone was ringing and, and while the phone rang, I looked to see who was calling in or my uh, PDA might go off. And I think this is the the experience where we're all kind of checking the environment for what's coming in and thinking when do I have to interrupt things. So if if President Obama calls on my cell phone, I'll probably have to stop. The conversation, it's unlikely he will call because he's never called me.
0: So would it be fair to say that, that you know, potentially one lesson from that would be that this is a good thing for, for people who are older to be trying to help communicate to younger people about how uh, there can be a need to actually focus in this way and it can be distracting They have multiple things going on?
1: I think it is a, an important lesson. I think that uh, probably the, the younger people should try to limit some of their tasking and see if they are more efficient. One of the schools I spoke to very early on when iBrain was launched had a panel of about a half a dozen senior students and uh, they talked very candidly about their multitasking, how they're doing their Facebook while they're doing their homework and they're uh, doing you know, they're video conferencing at the same time, and and sometimes they talked about how they got confused, how they weren't sure what they were doing at at one particular time. And I know that when I'm doing it, uh, I certainly have a little bit of trouble with it myself.
0: So uh, something occurred to me as I was reading the book, which is that for those of us who've become active participants in the read-write web, blogging, or social networking, and and are definitely in the middle age category, it feels as though our relationship to learning has changed and that our brains are actually changing. And I've wondered about uh, whether that's having an impact in terms of um, perceptions of age and, uh, um, and what it means to be, say, 50 years
1: old. Well, I think that it's, this is where we like to talk about the brain gap, exaggerating the uh, generation gap, that you know, what this technology has done is so remarkable. It's taken everything that we know about our lives and sort of put it into high gear. So, uh, you know, it's unbelievable what the social networks do today. That uh, You know, I see my daughter with her Facebook and how quickly uh, the kids make plans and take care of things and communicate. And what's happening is the older generation is catching up a bit. You're starting to see uh, see us get a little more facile with some of these technologies. And so I think in this way, we are bridging the brain gap. But I know I certainly don't use text messaging that much. And when I text message, I, kind of, I often do it with my daughter. And I try to be cute and be silly and kind of annoy her a little bit with, with some of the terminology I use. But it's a way of, I think, bridging the brain gap is helping the generations help each other with the technologies.
0: So there have been a couple of questions in the chat. If you do want to ask a question using your microphone, please feel free to raise your hand. That's the hand icon with the green up arrow at the bottom of the participant box. Allison Saylor says, is this back channel chat distracting us from Gary's message? Is this information good for our thinking and absorbing the information? Do you have a comment on that?
1: Well, you know, I think it is distracting. I mean, I'm sitting here, and I'm kind of excited yet um, daunted by all the comments and I wish I could get to them, and it gives me a sense, I think this is where it, it really uh, is a negative effect, it gives me a, a little sense of anxiety, because there's a sense that I cannot complete it, and I, I certainly feel this with my email, that it's it's endless, that I can never quite catch up with all of it. There are so many details and so many messages coming in. and uh, so I think that's that's a difficult thing if you're if you tend to be a bit obsessive as I am or I like to uh finish tasks and take care of them. On the other hand, one could argue that maybe this is good for for ourselves. Maybe it makes us a little less a, uh, obsessive, a little more resilient and tolerant of ambiguity in our lives. So I see somebody's hand is raised.
0: So I'll give Deb the microphone in a second. I do want to respond to that because I think that's a really good point, and I think those of us who are familiar with this environment tend to do a little bit of um, helping or mentoring and letting people know if the chat helps you and it's a way for you to continue the conversation, use it. And if it's not, it's often good just to ignore it because it can distract you from what's going on. So maybe that fits in a little with your sense of the need to kind of teach strategies around these technologies.
1: Well, I think also part of it has to do with that bell-shaped curve I saw. I mean, as you talk, I'm, you know, kind of scanning down some of these wonderful comments in the chat, and I'm becoming more familiar with it. So probably the amygdala in my brain, the anxiety center, is quieting down, and my frontal lobe is kicking in because I'm developing a strategy to deal with this. And I think that's one of the wonderful things, for example, about the Internet uh, search Study is that you know one thing nice about these technologies that we is that we can pace ourselves, we can push the envelope at whatever uh, stage of adaptation that makes us feel comfortable which which is great for those people who are bored uh sitting, I know for me, I tend to get bored just sitting in a classroom listening to someone talk unless they're a really uh, compelling speaker. Uh, and what you find today in the classroom is everybody's looking at their handheld device.
0: So, Deb, I've given you the microphone. You you have to click on the microphone button in the audio box to turn your mic on. Though. There <laughs> Thanks, you go. Steve. Uh, Dr. Small, I mentor my 87-year-old
3: father on, with technology, and he's a very bright man. He graduated from Cornell. But what I find is that he's extremely slow and unable to really grasp it. It's almost like he has a learning disability that I would equate to the fact of him not being technologically savvy. Um, and And it concerns me because I think that the elderly needs to be part of the technology world because it is the way young, it's it's our communication. So I'm curious what you feel about the elder folks in technology. And the other question I have for you, Dr. Hey, let me Let me start, with,
1: can I start with that? Because being a memory expert, I'm afraid I'll forget the first question if you ask me the second question. So let me sure. just start with that. It's a great question. And I, you know, it's interesting to me because I was on the elevator today and I saw a colleague who had you know, a date book, and I just hadn't seen one of those for so long, and he, and I said to him, wow, there's an old technology, and we were sort of joking about it. And I also reflected on my father, who's in his 80s, who, you know, had absolutely no interest in in doing anything technological until he was still working as a, a physician at a uh, hospital, until they switched to electronic records where everything he did had to involve the cube computer. Well, guess what? He learned the computer within a week. So my point is, unless the person, regardless of their age, has a purpose, whether that that technology uh, gives them some kind of meaningful payoff, I don't think they're really going to get into it. And one of the, a great way to really get older people, grandparents, involved in the technology, and where a lot of them start, is they start email accounts and they start emailing with their grandchildren in other cities. So I, you know, my suggestion is, is to give them something that really has meaning and fun in their lives. Well, he did. It was just the fact that it it it
3: was amazing to me for being such a bright bright viable man how I had to really address technology with him as if he was on on an individual learning plan or that he was a special ed person. I found it to be a learning disability. That was really what I was trying to address to you that here he was so viable and yet in a technological world that created a handicap for him. And so as a teacher, I I drew upon my skills in working with special ed students to assist him in becoming a te- technology user.
1: Thank you for that comment. That's terrific.
0: Well, that's interesting to me, Deb, because I think one of the things that concerns me is that I have four children, and they respond differently to the technologies. And For some of my kids, it's easier than others. And I worry that sometimes our focus on these technologies um, leaves some students behind. Who aren't necessarily predisposed to communicating this way?
3: Wow, I, I really, I really agree with you because it's it it hits upon modalities, Steve. I I believe that you're absolutely correct, and I also think that we make a great deal of assumptions in technology. Those of us who are technological, who are trying to teach other people, I know I often find that I have to slow down and realize that it's not innate in them when it is, I think like a machine, that's my skill, that's why I'm in technology but the people that I'm working with come from all different backgrounds and skill levels. I agree with you.
0: Dr. Small, any comments on that?
1: Well, you know, I think it's uh, technology is not for everyone or how much we get involved in it will change, and, and this whole area is uh, really rapidly changing. So today we, talk, we have keyboards and mice. In the future, I think instead of wearing a, a Bluetooth earpiece, we will probably have little sensors that will directly connect the technology to our thoughts.
0: So I've gathered a couple of other questions, and uh, again, if you have a question for Dr. Small and you'd like to take the mic, please raise your hand, the hand uh, icon with the green up arrow, and I've uh, gathered a couple of others. One in particular, a comment from Tim, who said, Dr. Small sounds like the old guy that doesn't understand young people and is trying to rationalize why things need to stay the same. I'm not hearing that from you, Dr. Small. Are you? Do you want to rebut that at all?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I would... Uh Sure, I, I seem ancient to my kids. Uh, I would agree with that. It's all relative age, but I, I don't think that at all. I think technology is marvelous, and I want more people to use it, and I want uh, really the generations to come together. But I, what I don't want is for us to lose our face-to-face human contact skills. I think it's you know there's something about when you look somebody in the eye and you have a conversation and you can read the nonverbal cues. That's critically important. And uh, I do have a concern that young people are not valuing that as much as perhaps they should. So, Laura had a question, and Laura, I'm
0: going to encourage you to type your question in since you don't have a microphone. I'd like to ask about what you call in the book the constant state of crisis, and which you uh, refer to just briefly, also I think you say digital fog or techno brain burnout. How real is this, and how pervasive do you think it, it is as a concern?
1: Well, you know, I think it's uh, something that hasn't been studied systematically, and it's really from anecdotal experience, from my own experience, and talking to others. It is something real uh, that people really uh, become less alert, uh, less focused when they spend too much time staring at a screen. And it's not something like it's it's going to harm your brain permanently, but I think it does affect our efficiency and our ability to get the job done.
0: So Laura's question that she typed in was, do we have brain images of younger brains showing activity when using the internet?
1: We don't have those studies yet. Uh, the, The Brain on Google study was the first of its kind, and we're hoping that it will stimulate more research in this area to see how a young brain differs from an old brain. I have
0: a couple of other questions from the chat, but Deb, did you raise your hand again and did you want to uh, take the mic?
3: Well, I really quickly wanted to know a little more, Dr. Small, about the technology. I'm not, I didn't read the book, I apologize, but tech burnout. And is it just taking time out from tech that helps you come back? Because, like, I would love to Twitter and do all of these things, but there's a part of me that just thinks like, oh, my God, I don't know that I can
1: do it. Well, you know, I think that, you know, the first part of the question, it's its an individual issue. I mean, some people just uh, can spend hours and hours with the technology and they do just fine. Others are much more sensitive to it. Uh, there have been some studies showing in young people with learning disability or uh, borderline autistic spectrum disorder, but they are quite sensitive to exposure to technology and it affects their level of irritability, their attention, uh, and and that's a problem. So I think the point of the book is for people to be aware of it and to think of how it affects them and to find balance in their own lives and to really spend the time away from the technology when they need to. So it looks like Teresa has a question. Do you want to go ahead, Teresa?
2: Hi, thank you, Dr. Small. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, perfect. Well, actually, it's funny. I just got a million text messages because in my family, our latest native has just been born as of
1: 20 minutes ago. That's exciting.
2: I'm already thinking, like, how we can help her.
1: (laughs) I I would recommend uh, no iPhone before the age of one.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, actually, I was i was curious. I wanted to ask a question about um, if you've had any experience or uh, any studies with different cultures or the different regions and countries. I know we have a, a few people listening that are from South America, and also I, I'm very familiar with the Asian market and how they're constantly evolving and using technology with mobile phones and online yeah. applications. And have you found any to be different studies between different uh, cultures?
1: There's not a lot that's been studied uh, cross-culturally. We do know, however, that in Asia they are much keener on recognizing the problem with technology addiction. This is still a debate in this country. The American Psychiatric Association, American Medical Association aren't so sure that uh, people can actually get addicted to using the internet or email, just the way they get addicted to a drug or to food, Uh, but in Asia, they're convinced that this happens, and it's a big problem, particularly among teenagers who are who appear to be addicted to video games. And they actually have boot camps and and uh, rehab centers specifically for these kinds of problems. The other other thing that's quite interesting is that you do see the technology, the communication technology, penetrating into third world countries, into uh, underdeveloped nations that uh, are relatively primitive in terms of other technologies, but you still see cell phone towers, and you see internet cafes that have uh, reached around the world.
2: Actually, I've I've used them in Africa myself
1: (laughs) in 2001,
2: so So, um, they didn't have running water at this location, but they had cell phones.
1: That's remarkable. it 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 just shows you how powerful this technology is, how much we want it.
0: I think it would be interesting, Teresa, also to look at uh, we uh, interviewed Howard Rheingold on Tuesday, Dr. Small, and he, uh, he wrote a book called Smart Mobs, and he looked specifically at texting in Japan and talked about the differences in, their, um, in the way they live their lives already, that they're in confined small spaces. So they actually go into large public spaces to do a lot of this activity, mm-hmm. whereas in the United States, we do a lot of this activity in private. Interesting.
1: So there are definitely these cultural differences that are Really quite fascinating.
0: So Tim had a question for you. Uh, he wanted to know if you allow laptops in classes you teach?
1: Well, you know for me, I, um, I'm in a university and it's a publisher parish. so I don't teach too many uh, large classes. and you know I don't really set any rules. but I've got to tell you when uh, when I do talk at conferences, I can tell when people are multitasking and I can't really stop them and I know what it's like. I, you know, I have for example, uh it's very difficult for me to sit through an entire day of a conference and not uh keep up with some of the correspondence on the computer. But I can it is uh disconcerting that you don't have people's full attention, and uh, it's it's really hard for me to stop it, and uh, I understand it, but I don't like it. I uh, I had a conversation with my 17-year-old daughter the other day, and I said to her, Rachel, you know, when when I'm talking to you and you're texting at the same time, I don't really feel that you're paying full attention, and so she looked up to me and she said, don't worry, Dad, I don't do this with my teachers, and then went back to her texting. So I think that's the unfortunate state of affairs we have.
0: You know, it's very interesting, too, because that use of the technology during a lecture can either mean I'm disassociated and I'm doing something else, or it can actually mean I'm looking up something that you have referred to. And I've often appreciated it when, in in that format, somebody actually then raises their hand and says, hey, I I just found a link on the web. About this, and they make it clear that the work that they're doing is related to what's going on in the class.
1: Well, you know, and I, I appreciate that too, and that's one of the marvelous things about it. You can always, you know, rationalize it. Oh, they're, I'm sure, looking something up. They're reading one of my articles or something, or maybe even better, they're buying my book online as we speak
0: sure several people have done that already. <laughs>
1: I, <hope so. laughs> I, I
0: will say it's very interesting to me that the, the, even the act of reading a book for me has changed in the last few years. Uh, interesting to me the degree to which these interactive technologies are affecting my lives, my life in places that weren't highly interactive. And I'm much more uh, of now of a responder to a book in that I write lots of notes in the book and I mark lots of pages and I become a very engaged reader in a way that I don't think I was before. And that's fascinating to me that my own learning styles have changed because of the technologies impacting even passive activities.
1: Well you know I think that's a that's a great point and in the brain on Google study, we made that point because we found the frontal lobe was particularly activated during the internet search, and the frontal lobe is a thinking brain it's decision making uh, and you know you think you, when you're using the computer you're you're really interacting, you're not just sitting and imagining things like you do when you read a book. So I think this is all good for the brain and i'm I'm very excited about it So probably time
0: for one or two final questions. Uh, Teresa says, can you mention some of the tips or ideas for offline brain tra- training that you mentioned?
1: Well, you know, I think that it's it really has to do with what you enjoy. And, um, uh, you know, what I like to do is to, one thing we do in our family is we have no technology during dinner hour, and we have conversations, and we Uh, talk about the day. Uh, You know, I like to do crossword puzzles and Sudoku and now the New York Times has a Ken Ken puzzle which I enjoy. So reading, uh, physical activity is tremendous. In terms of keeping the brain healthy, aerobic conditioning is probably the most powerful uh, offline activity we have in terms of protecting your brain cells. So it can be meditating, it can be conversing, uh, pretty much what you enjoy. Okay, uh, time for one final question.
0: Uh, While we're doing so, or waiting for that question, um, I'm going to give you thanks, Dr. Small, by using the clapping icon there.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And uh, terrific job, a really enjoyable book for me. Loved reading it. I have portions that I plan to go back and reread, much as I plan on rereading the chat here, uh, which we do (laughs) publish as a part of this. We publish the audio, audio, the full recording, and then just the chat recording. And I'm sure others will be doing the same. Please do remember, uh, coming up, Tim Westergren from Pandora next week, and then you can see the rest of the schedule there. We've changed the format of our uh, end of show survey, uh, and now when you close out of the Illuminate session, the survey will come up in your browser, and we do please uh, encourage you to fill that out so we can know how we're doing and, and ways in which we can improve the show. Uh, in the absence of a final question there, which I'm not seeing. Uh, Dr. Small, thanks so much. It's a, a lot of time to take out of your busy day. Very enjoyable and, and for us, and we really appreciate the time.
1: Thank you, Steve, and thank you to everyone out there who joined us today. My pleasure. Thanks for coming, everybody.
0: Have a great evening. Please do uh, look the book up, iBrain, Surviving the Technological Alteration of the Modern Mind, a great read. Uh, well worth the Amazon click, if you're so inclined. <laughs> And uh, we'll we'll see you next week online. And Dr. Small, you are welcome to just actually exit the program. I'm sure you have okay. other things to do. Thanks okay, for being thanks here. Thanks a lot.
1: No, no need to stay. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you. So, Teresa, I thought that
0: uh, the Howard Reingold material there on Japan fits in very nicely. And, and even though that book from him is from 2002...
2: Oh, no, I've, uh, I've read some of it. I've, and that's, yeah, that was one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up from the, the the brain perspective, I guess.
0: Chris is asking, where can we find the recorded version? Chris, whatever link you use to come into the show, whether it was a conversations.net, uh, com, or Learn Central... The recording link will be posted uh, within a few hours, the eliminate recording link, and then the full recordings of the, um, of the downloadable recordings, the MP4 and the MP3 and the text off of the chat, will be available in about a day. Yes, so Tim, uh, futureofeducation.com or conversations.net, and also learncentral.org, where if you would like, you can actually host your own webinar series. As part of my work for Illuminate, I'm encouraging this. I think this is a great technology. I'm hoping that others will get excited about holding webinars, and uh, there's a public calendar and a public Illuminate room that you can use for free to do this. My Twitter address is Steve Hargadon, all one word, although I need to warn you, I don't do a lot of Twittering. Uh, I like Twittering. I like Twitter as an announcement platform, but you will not find out what I've eaten for breakfast on my Twitter account. Great links in the chat today. Sure appreciate uh, the terrific uh, chat that took place. I, I definitely am going to go back and reread. So Laura, to uh, exit, you just file exit, and the, the, um, the survey, the evaluation will come up as soon as you exit it out. And thanks, everybody, in a couple of minutes. You do need to exit in order for the recording to process, so please, uh, when you are done, just go to file, exit or close the program down. Kate, I'm glad you found it interesting. Yes, it was a great chat today. Future sessions on math and technology. Always, but uh, Maria Druzhkova, who, I don't know if she's still in the room. I'm hoping she is so that she can promote her math 2.0 series, which she is doing as part of uh, learncentral.org. So go to LearnCentral.org and look for Maria, and you will be able to follow her MAT 2.0 webinars, which will also appear in my announcements, uh, the weekly announcements I send to Classroom 2.0 and LearnCentral.org. Maria's sessions are appearing in there. Chris, you just closed the program out. or go to File, Exit. If you did want to download the slides from today's show, you can go up to File, Save, and you can save the whiteboard. Here I am. You can hear probably the motorcycle in the background. Here I am in this very hot room in Maui on vacation, but I didn't want to miss this show. So, Teresa, the answer is yes, I am on vacation, which is why I haven't replied to you in multiple emails. I promise you I'll get to them. I'm, I'm still on California time, so I'm waking up at 4.30 in the morning here in Hawaii. Oh, I'm getting a good four hours of work done so that my family won't be super mad at me, and then I have a reasonable excuse to go to bed early. But uh, uh, I apologize. Don't worry, I will get back to you. Chris, thank you. I didn't know it was different on the Mac, so thanks for pointing that out. Okay, so I need to kick everybody out. If you haven't left the room, I'm going to actually um, close the session. Don't turn off the recording.